0: Hello everyone and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. This is Joy Clark and today on the CASE podcast I will be talking with Lucas Doman about front-end development. Welcome to the show. Hi Joy. (laughs) Um, So first off uh, we want to talk about front-end development today. Uh, Could you tell us what front-end development is?
1: So when we are talking about front-end development what we usually mean is web front-end development. So on the web, we have technologies that are executed in the browser, and we have technologies that are executed on the backend uh, or on the server. Um, and uh, when we talk about front end, we mean technologies like HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, which are mm-hmm. executed in the browser of the user.
0: Okay. Um, so, do you do? How would you describe yourself? Do you do mainly front end development, or mainly back end development, or both?
1: Or? Yeah, I think I none. Do- or? <laughs> <laughs> or none of it. <laughs> no. um, I think I do both. And it's, um, I I switch between front end and back end, between projects and between jobs. Um, bef- uh, in the job before I started to be a consultant, I uh, worked at a database company and wrote a database. So um, I'm very interested in the web mm-hmm. and I do everything that's related to the web. Okay. Uh, both databases backend development and front end development okay um
0: uh so in your so i've i hang out with a lot of back end developers i've been called a back end developer at some <laughs> point in my life um and and i think a, a common misconception uh, um is there's a common misconception among back end developers that uh front end is not as difficult as back end mm-hmm. um would you have any response to that
1: <laughs> yeah, odd I, claim? I think that uh, it's weird that people say that. Um, it changed a little bit over the last couple of years and people now think that end is not that simple because they see all those complex JavaScript front end frameworks. Um, but apart from that, um, people still think, for example, CSS is easy. But on the other hand... Uh, I see a lot of people that um, are mainly backend developers that still post this uh, GIF of this guy that um, changes the uh, that this family guy where it says CSS is very complex or uh, when I change something, everything breaks. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes those are the same kind of people. They say CSS is simple and uh, I don't want to deal with it because it's too simple. I'm a real developer in in quotes. Uh, And at the same time, they say, I can't change something in CSS because it breaks the entire page. So I think um, in a way it's more complex Um, to write front-end than back-end because you have a less controlled environment. Mm -hmm. If you think about your uh, server-side language, no matter, even if it's JavaScript, it's very controlled compared to the front-end because you can choose what Node.js version you're using or what Mm -hmm. JVM version you're using. If you are on the uh, client side, on the other hand, you have no control over that. You can't say, I need version 1.5 of javascript because mm-hmm. nothing like that exists so you can't do that mm-hmm. so um you have to do a lot of a lot more testing of different setups than you have to do on your backend because normally you have you have the same setup in uh, production and on staging and on your local machine basically mm-hmm. Um, and this is where the frontend gets very complex. I'm not saying that backend development is easy, but um, frontend has its own complexity and especially a good maintainable CSS is very hard uh, and you need to put a lot of effort into it.
0: Okay. Could you just um, briefly describe, you, you mentioned the building blocks, HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Could you mm-hmm. briefly s- describe what they are?
1: Okay. So, HTML uh, is a markup language, and uh, it is a structured way of expressing content, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And with this representation, you can now do something with it. For example, you can style it. And if you want to style it, and you want to put it into a layout, you want to put colors into it, and stuff like that, you will use CSS. And then uh, there's JavaScript, and JavaScript was intended to be used as a language to add behavior to this uh, HTML and CSS construct that is not part of the browser. Mm -hmm. Uh, But nowadays, some people prefer to use it as basically the entire front end, where Mm -hmm. it is basically the engine of the front end.
0: Mm -hmm. So uh, it sounds like you're talking about there's different, even in the front end, uh, there's different kinds of architectures. Mm -hmm. Is that true?
1: Yes, that's that's very true because um, there are very different frameworks and, and libraries that you can use but uh, at a fundamental level you have to make one decision and that is where do I produce the HTML code? Because okay. the classic approach in quotes is to produce HTML on the server and send it to our client. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is how it was yeah, supposed to be done when the web was invented, basically. Um, and some people say that this is inefficient and they prefer to create the HTML on the front end. So basically they consume some kind of JSON API, for example, and then they uh, create HTML in the browser. Mm-hmm. Um, and this has... Advantages and disadvantages, um, and some people say that this is the modern approach. I would disagree; it, it's just a different approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- those are basically the two different styles that we have.
0: Could you um, could you talk a little bit about the benefits and downsides of those two mm-hmm. approaches? You you mentioned the rendering HTML on the server side and, and um, the rendering on the client side. Could you kind of talk about the Mm-hmm. pros and cons of those two approaches.
1: Yeah, so um, one thing that uh, that's a common misconception is that producing the HTML on the server side is somehow inefficient because you um, push more data to the client, which is, in my experience, not true because JSON is not smaller than HTML, especially when you use something like gzip, because all the tags will basically be gone oh, from the okay from the um, GZIP version of the data. Um, So that's, yeah, I think that they are both very similar in that uh, regard. Um, A problem that the JavaScript version has is that um, if JavaScript is not available or the script breaks, for example, it throws an exception, um, then the front end will not be responsive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, from time to time, visit a page and it's just a white page mm-hmm. and there's no error message, there's nothing, it's just empty. And that's basically a very early exception that was thrown uh, in a single page application. That's a common way to describe those applications. Um, and that's a problem that um, people try to solve in different ways. Um one approach is to render the JavaScript that you're executing in the browser on the server as well. And then first send this HTML over and also the JSON. And then you have the static version of the page basically. Uh, And uh, you still have this interaction model. But this of course increases the complexity of your setup because now you also have to do the server side rendering You have to have a framework that understands how to uh, change the HTML that was sent to the browser in a way that is compatible to the HTML that was sent. Um, And it doesn't change the fundamental problem because if now at a later stage a problem occurs, the front end will not be responsive, right? And that's um, why I personally think that the the client-rendered, Uh, web applications are less resilient to failures than the um, server-side rendered ones. Reasons why people um, still prefer that is that on the one hand, um, they want to have um, faster interactions. So imagine that you, for example, have um, a text field and a markdown previewer to Mm -hmm. the right if you now have the like, really like classic server-rendered version, you would always need to send the markdown to the server and receive it back, right? Mm-hmm. If you, however, had a markdown parser on the client, then you can show it directly. There is no network uh, mm-hmm. between that. Um, and depending on the UX or the, the, the front-end complexity of your framework it is possible that um, it makes sense to at least uh, partially move pa- uh, your application to the front end, right? So if you, for example, build uh, the next Photoshop, mm-hmm. um, it would not make a lot of sense to make that as a server-side rendered application, right? Because every stroke you make with your paint brush would be sent to the server and sent back, and then you see the result. Mm-hmm. That would be very inefficient, right? Um, but if you think about um, most web applications uh, w- this is not the normal use case and still if you do, if you do server rendered applications it's it doesn't mean that you don't write any JavaScript right mm-hmm. because you still write JavaScript but uh, you would write less JavaScript and it would probably not have as much business logic mm-hmm. inside the client because that's one of the Uh, results of that, because you cannot trust the client, if you would um, have authentication logic and execute Mm -hmm. it on the client, you always need to do that on the server as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because you cannot trust the client to be mangled with or changed with. Um, And this is why uh, a lot of those client-side rendered applications have a lot of duplicate logic between the server and the client. and that's why I personally prefer the server-rendered way. But I see applications where it makes sense, like games, for example, don't make sense as a server-rendered version or yeah, Google Maps, for example.
0: So is it possible to write web applications without JavaScript?
1: Yes, it is possible. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, I would say that it is um, something that people have forgotten to do how to do because um, in a lot of cases you don't need JavaScript mm-hmm. it, because nowadays um, a lot of very powerful HTML elements are available to us. Mm-hmm. If you want to play a piece of audio for example with mm-hmm. the audio player there is a ready made HTML element. You don't need any JavaScript to play that piece of audio and press pause and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of pages don't need that. A block, for example, doesn't need any JavaScript, in my opinion. Like mm-hmm. the normal, not super fancy block just needs to render text in a nice way with a nice layout. And that's all done with HTML and CSS. And one area where it also is not n- n- no longer necessary is animations, because animations can be made with CSS. Mm-hmm. And uh, they are... Uh, normally, just more efficient because um, it is um, supported by the uh, GPU of your uh, computer or your mm-hmm. uh, your mobile phone, uh, and it will be nicer to the uh, batteries mm-hmm. of of your customers. Um, so there are a lot of things that we don't we no longer need JavaScript for. Um, I would not say that you should not write JavaScript, but I would always advise people to think twice about it because if you compare JavaScript, for example, to CSS, JavaScript uh, is uh, much less resilient because if, for example, you put a typo into background of your CSS, what the browser will do is it will not throw an exception, it will not crash or something, it will just ignore that line Mm -hmm. in your CSS because CSS is a declarative language. Mm -hmm. And if some of the statements don't work in that particular browser because maybe it's an old browser that doesn't know border radius for example mm-hmm. that would be a very old browser but <laughs> <laughs> uh, nonetheless um, then uh, the, the uh, application will continue to work it will just not have this one feature this one thing mm-hmm. but um, if in your javascript you mistype some library name then mm-hmm. it will just crash right and it cannot just go on because it's not a declarative language. It will need to execute all the statements in the JavaScript. Um, and that's where I would yeah, try to first look into what does my browser natively support? Mm-hmm. And if it supports it, is it enough? Is it good enough for my use case? And then use that instead of um, building your own JavaScript for it. Okay,
0: interesting. Um, yeah, we have a, an episode, we did an episode, uh, with Jen Simmons, uh, episode number one of the case Mm -hmm. podcast for anyone who's interested in, um, in hearing more about CSS. I think the episode, that episode turned out really well. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so we're able to develop web applications without, um, without JavaScript. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh,
0: where does JavaScript then come into play? Mm-hmm. Like why would I if I can do it without JavaScript why would I do it with JavaScript?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so <laughs> so so let's say that um, you have some interactive element that does not exist in HTML. Let's say you want to have um, you want to have uh, like a board of cards and you can drag and drop your cards mm-hmm. from one space to the other then um, it would be very nice because it's a nice user experience to, ha- to just drag and drop your cards from one place to, the- to another and not just like click on it and say, move two lanes, blah, 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 and then move it there. Um, and in this case, you could write a piece of JavaScript that makes it drag and droppable. Um, and modern browsers have a very nice way to do those enhancements Uh, which is called custom elements. And custom elements are basically uh, new HTML elements that you yourself have made up and you implement how they work in JavaScript. Mm -hmm. And they have some, it it looks like a normal HTML tag that just doesn't exist in the normal world. Mm -hmm. And you then write the code on how it works. And this is how I... Personally, prefer to use JavaScript basically as um, a way of saying uh, of teaching the browser about new things that it doesn't know about. Basically,
0: mm-hmm. okay. um, we were talking about so there was the the server side rendered apps and the and the client side rendered apps, um, and and I'm thinking about how how does the um, like when we're developing web applications we're talking about front end development, mm-hmm. um, but. Does that mean we get to ignore the backend completely? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So that's that's one of the reasons why some people want to do uh, client-side rendered applications. Um, so if you have uh, developers that don't want to interact with front end, they just want to do backend. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a very easy way to just say that we have an API and. This, this API produces JSON or XML or something. And then there is a separate team, a front-end team, mm-hmm. and that talks to this API. And then we have a very clear cut between those two teams, right? Mm-hmm. And some people think that's desirable because they want uh, to have a fancy microservice architecture with 500 services and our front-end talks to those services. Okay. But I think that this kind of architecture is a product of an architect that doesn't uh, think that front-end is a complex topic, right? Because why would you cut your back-end into 500 services, but only have one application that is the Mm -hmm. front-end? For me, that just means that you think that it's so much easier and so much smaller that it doesn't need to be cut into multiple pieces. So a, a different approach would be to say that you have, let's say, 10 services, but each of them produces their own HTML and delivers it to the client. And then it's basically um, a question of how to jump between those systems on how to integrate that. Um, and that means that a team that will that works on this one system um, consists of both front-end and back-end developers, mm-hmm. but they work together and they can create a system that uh, if they want to deploy a new version they only need to deploy that new version because if you compare that to the version where you have a front-end team that has the front-end monolith Mm -hmm. in quotes then um, a change will probably um, also be made to the front-end and to the back-end so Mm -hmm. they the teams need to coordinate that change so they need a new field in the API. And when that field is available, then the front-end team can do something with that field or something like that. Um, and that's where I would prefer to have like a cross-functional team, basically, mm-hmm. that, treats, that, that works together on one part of the application that mm-hmm. is uh, cut into multiple pieces. And um, some colleagues also uh, have that idea and they called that kind of architecture, self-contained systems. Um, we can link that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically an architectural style um, where yeah, where you cut the application not into front-end and back-end, but into different pieces. But I also saw customers that previously uh, had back-ends and then uh, Java um, client application, desktop application, basically. Mm-hmm. And for them... The jump to uh, 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 client-side rendered application was conceptually much smaller because it basically is the same architecture as they had before and it has okay. diff- it has advantages and disadvantages if you say that um, yeah the team just doesn't just wants to keep on working the same way they did before and the backend people can just continue working as they did before, then maybe you want to have... Uh, a single page application in the front end that basically that is that architecture but I would argue that if you want to move from your Java application to a web application then you have to rethink some of the parts of your application basically mm-hmm. um, and make it more web
0: okay um, uh, when you're when you're talking about cutting um, little pieces apart from each other how do you work I mean I'm, I'm thinking about user experience how do you? Mm-hmm. How can you, um, especially if, well, not, not only like even if it's one application, I think a lot of what you probably have to do when you're developing a front end is to think a lot about the user experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can think that um, that when we cut it into different services, then then we have to think even more about the okay. the user experiences overall all um, all of the services. So could you talk about how you can do that?
1: Yeah, so um, an important part of that is uh, to have, on the one hand, like a similar um, look and feel Mm -hmm. between the systems, right? So if I uh, want to have, um, I have four different applications and they all should look the same way, then they need to share some CSS and maybe some JavaScript between those applications, and a common way to do that uh, is a so-called style guide. A style mm-hmm. guide is basically, it means different things to different people, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one uh, uh, definition of a style guide is basically to have uh, th- that you have a centralized um, catalog of elements, for example, a header and a top navigation bar and stuff like that. And um, in, and the style guide lists all those different Uh, Elements Mm -hmm. and uh, you can then, as a backend developer, basically just pick and choose elements from that and say, "Okay, I need this kind of markup um, to show a nice top bar, and I don't need to write any CSS. I don't need to write any JavaScript. I just pull from that catalog." And uh, one thing that a lot of people have seen in that way is Bootstrap, basically. But because if you want to use Bootstrap, you put in the CSS and the JavaScript, and then you go to do the Bootstrap documentation and you look up, how do I create a card? And then you copy your markup and copy it into your code and then it it looks the way that Bootstrap made Mm. it. And as a company, you can basically create your own Bootstrap, basically. So your own style guide and then uh, tell the different teams, this is the um, catalog of things that you can use. And um, then they will look the way that the, the style team or design mm-hmm. team has intended it to look. Um, and there are different approaches to, to how to do that. Um, one question is, do you allow the teams to add their own CSS and JavaScript to the mix? Mm-hmm. Um, if you allow that, then you need to come up with a way that it doesn't clash, in, uh, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say that you almost always need a way to do that because um, there will always be some elements that are only necessary in one of the systems and and also you uh, need a new element Then you don't want to wait until it is available in the central style guide and then add it later you want to do that now and maybe before going into production you will then extract it and put it into the style guide but um, you want to be able to add something. So you have to to find a solution for that. Um, And two ways to do that are you either um, provide all the CSS and JavaScript as an NPM package. NPM is the package manager for Node, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, like uh, Maven, I think. (laughs) I don't know. I'm not a Java developer. Uh, (laughs) But uh, you install packages, basically, (laughs) and then um, your application... Imports those packages and delivers the CSS and JavaScript. That's the one approach. And the other approach is that you put the CSS and JavaScript on a central server, and all applications just um, reference that CSS and JavaScript. Um, in both cases, um, you need to make sure that you can uh, that you have a version. Mm. Um, style guide basically so if something is added to the style guide it is not automatically delivered to all the clients Mm -hmm. but it is uh, to all the systems but the systems can opt into updating so uh, if i have version 1.3 now then i can choose to update tomorrow and the other team can choose to update today because they have time of course you need to make sure that the versions don't split apart too much because if one of the systems uses version one and the other one uses seven, then they will look very different and the look and feel will not be the same. But it should be okay that one of the teams updates today and the other team updates uh, in one week, for example, mm-hmm. because they have an important deadline they need to uh, make sure to, uh, uh, to meet um, and uh, those are. Uh, th- this is possible in both the npm version because you can just release a new version of the package. But it's also uh, possible in the central uh, asset version because you can just have a different URL for different versions of the file. And then the um, design UX team tells everyone, okay, there's a new version available. Mm-hmm. You can now update to the new package.
0: So, what's the relationship between front end development and design?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very close relationship um, because as a front-end developer, you... Um, they, okay, so w- when I started with front-end development, I worked at a company where we had a designer and, mm-hmm. and she designed in Photoshop and sent me the Photoshop files. And then I sat down and wrote the HTML and CSS to make it look like the Photoshop mm-hmm. file. Um, and that worked pretty well back then Um, and there was a clear cut because I didn't do any design Mm -hmm. and she didn't write any code Um, this becomes harder and harder over time because uh, nowadays uh, we don't design for a fixed width layout Mm -hmm. but we design for thousands of different sizes of devices Um, and then you would need to create different mock-ups for different sizes and, and uh, things like that. And therefore you need to to collaborate much closer together because the designer can no longer create a mock-up for all sizes, right? Because that would be just too much work. So you have to fill in the gaps between the version for the mm-hmm. iPhone and the iPad. What happens uh, on those scales? And uh, designers and um and front-end developers, they need to uh, work much closer together nowadays because um, they need to uh, yeah, communicate about what happens in those cases between. Um, and some people say that a designer nowadays needs to be able to write HTML and CSS. I would disagree. I would say that it helps a lot because um, then you have a better understanding on how it works but I would not say that you need to be an expert CSS coder to be a good web designer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I still think that, they're, they're, that those are two different roles and some people are able to fill both roles. Um, I, for example, um, am not a very good designer, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, I can, um, yeah, put all designer things into HTML and CSS that works uh, very well. So, um I think that's still possible, and I think that's still necessary because they are they are different um, they are different skill sets. Mm-hmm. Because being a good designer is a different skill set than being a good CSS uh, developer, mm-hmm. for example. Um, but uh, I think we need to work closely together to make sure that both we know the limitations mm-hmm. and also know the new capabilities that the browser has. So if If there is a new cool CSS feature, then this could be a good inspiration to a developer, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. To a designer, right? Because now they see, oh, cool, we can now do this. And I didn't know that websites can do that. So let's bring that into uh, our product. Um, And the same thing goes for UX designers, right? This is also a different role. But as a front-end developer, you need to be able to... um, talk to both designers and UX um, people to bring all those um, different parts into code and into life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it makes sense to to learn about uh, graphic design, about UX as a front-end developer, but I don't think you need to be an expert uh, to be a good front-end developer.
0: Okay. Um, you're talking about different browsers, um, and I'm thinking about performance. Mm-hmm. So, what role does performance play when developing front-end applications? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. So, um, I think uh, in some ways people underestimate that because all they, when they talk about uh, performance, uh, they have their tools to measure how fast was the SQL query and how fast was rendering the JSON or um, HTML on the server side. But they stop when it comes to the client, right? And um, they don't measure anything in the client. But I think that's a mistake because the more interactive and the more um, interesting we uh, interesting things we do in the client, the more we need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Because um, if you, for example, put all a lot of JavaScript into the client, It has a lot of uh, performance implications. Um, So you need to make sure that it also works on a maybe slower um, uh, telephone uh, device. Mm -hmm. So um, the more things you do in the client, the more uh, complex CSS you write, the more complex JavaScript you write, the more... Testing you need to do with real devices mm-hmm. on how they work and and how uh, how fast they are and modern browsers like Chrome they offer a lot of insights into like how long did it take to paint in in quotes this part of the screen mm-hmm. um, and you can can look into that and see which parts do I need to optimize uh, and um, we also need to make sure like if if you write. CSS uh, in a way that um, results in a lot bigger CSS files, then this big CSS file needs to be delivered to the client, which Mm -hmm. costs a lot of time. And it also needs to be parsed by the browser browser, and then executed, right? And a small CSS file is always faster than a big CSS file. Mm -hmm. Uh, The same goes for JavaScript. A lot of people um, underestimate that. But if you have a lot of JavaScript, then uh, your iPhone or Android device uh, will take a lot of time to execute all the, all this code. And if you as a developer always have the newest hardware, like the newest MacBook Pro and the newest iPhone X or something, and you only test on those devices with the fastest internet that's available, then you might think that it's okay from the performance uh, perspective. But maybe also test it under worse circumstances, uh, mm-hmm. like a slow internet connection and uh, a five-year-old Android device. Mm -hmm. Um, So do you
0: have a five-year-old Android device sitting at home to um,
1: check
0: uh, (laughs) (laughs) here? How do you do your testing?
1: (laughs) At home, I don't have that. But uh, um, at the last uh, customer I worked for, uh, we um, bought uh, seven telephone devices and uh, two tablets Mm -hmm. and we tested all our code on all those devices i think that's necessary because there is no way that an emulator can really make sure that um Mm -hmm. this is the right performance you cannot you cannot find that in on your computer okay you will need to do that on a real device you will need to see like if i scroll with my thumb is it really smooth or is it slow? Um, mm-hmm. And you can only do that on a real device. There's no other way. Even if it's nice to have um, a service that will render your page on an Android device and on an iPhone and so on to see if there are big CSS errors, for example, where the on the one device um, the border is missing or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to get a, get a get a feeling for the user experience and especially for the performance, you need to have real devices. There is no way around that.
0: Okay. Um, is there any way you can, uh, when you're developing, optimize because uh, for for mobile devices? Because mm-hmm. I know that there, most of the browsers nowadays seem to be like on. I mean, when I'm at home, I usually don't open my laptop. Uh-huh. I just check it on my iPhone mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, and I'm really annoyed when the sites don't look nice on my yeah. phone. <laughs>
1: okay, so um, uh, one approach that people have is, is uh, this the so-called mobile-first design, mm-hmm. um, where they say that when you create a new web application, first create it for the smallest device that exists. Because... Mm-hmm it is always easier to add more things to your application than it is to remove things. So if you start on a 30-inch display mm-hmm. and you design your application for that display and then you want to make the same page available on your iPad, then you have to throw things out because otherwise it will be much too crammed on your device. So one uh, idea that um, uh, people had was just start with the smallest device and then go to the next device size and maybe add something, maybe don't. Maybe it's okay to just like put things in a different position uh, or uh, make them bigger or something mm-hmm. and then go to the next size and to the next size. And that's the, the, the basic idea of mobile mobile first design. Um, and I think that's still the best approach uh, for designing a system like that because um, I recently saw a project where they started on the big screen and then later wanted to make it available on phones, and it was much harder because then they they realized that certain elements just don't work on the smaller screen. They look bad or mm-hmm. they they uh, need to cut it in a in a place where it doesn't look good. Mm-hmm. Um, so start with the smallest device and usually the smaller devices are also slower than the bigger devices but that's not necessarily true if you have an iphone x and uh, the five-year-old computer basically Uh, but uh, normally uh, if if they are approximately the same age the smaller device will also be slower so you can also make sure that you don't um, start uh, that that you don't need too much performance from the Mm -hmm. device so the uh, one approach would be to just really start with a slow telephone device and then go to a bigger, faster device. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I've also heard the term offline first and I didn't Mm -hmm. know what that meant. How can a web application be offline?
1: Yeah, the the bigger question is, (laughs) how can it be mobile first and offline first? What's first now, no? (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Mobile uh,
0: first, uh, offline second, offline first. yeah,
1: second. <laughs> maybe, I don't know. Um, so I think that this uh, something first um, naming scheme uh, is something that people came up with a while ago and then they continued to put everything first. Like test-driven development means test first, basically. Mm-hmm. So um, it, um, yeah, I don't, I'm not a big <laughs> fan of the, the this um, naming scheme, but yeah. Um, what people mean when they say offline first is... Um, that um, if we have devices that are not always online, then uh, we need to think about a way of handling the offline case, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, you have your uh, to-do list application on your phone and you go into the supermarket and the connection drops because it's, there is no connection in the supermarket. And if you now cannot access your to-do list items anymore, then you cannot go shopping, right? Mm-hmm. That's bad. So you need to find a solution on how to do that. And some people said that the best solution is to start with the I have no connection case. So in the same way that mobile first says, let's first look at the smallest device and then look at the bigger devices. Offline first says, let's first look at the um, devices that have no connection and then look at the devices that have a connection. And if you want to design your application in an offline-first way, then you have no other choice than to um, put a lot of uh, logic into your phone because it now needs to do something when it's offline, right? Um, If you want to build an application that is offline capable, Mm -hmm. then it could also be a server-side rendered application because now uh, it can, uh, for example, have... Uh, caching on the on the client side Um, and one approach uh, one technology that uh, helped with uh, with this with with that um, problem is service workers service workers are basically an intelligent cache that you can um, configure with javascript Mm -hmm. so you can for example say if i cannot reach the server please instead do this Mm -hmm. So, for example, in the example of the to-do application, you could write it in a normal, um, in a server-rendered way, right? And then uh, you could write a service worker that will serve a cached version of the application whenever you're not online. Mm -hmm. And it will maybe also show a banner offline because it might be, yeah, outdated. Um, One problem I have with the offline-first approach is that a lot of people um, think about the technology problems first and think about the user problems later. Because if you really do offline first, mm-hmm. then you have a lot of synchronization errors. So if we two share a to-do list, um, for example, mm-hmm. and it is an app offline first application, we are both offline, and you check off an element and I edit the element what happens when we both go back online? Mm-hmm. Is the edited item now checked off? Is that okay? Maybe it's not because you added and tomatoes to the to to the potato check item, mm-hmm. and then it's not okay to just check it off. And um, for a simple application, it for always seems to be very clear on what to do. But the more complex your application becomes, the the bigger the the basically right conflicts between those two offline clients become so we we need to first think like with the with the people um with the business people and the ux people and uh, the design people like what do we do in a case where two people do something that does not uh yeah that cannot be resolved mm-hmm. um and In a lot of cases, you need to ask your user to resolve that conflict because you cannot do that in an intelligent way. Um, In some cases, you maybe can do it. um, But I would uh, recommend people to first, like before they start with their offline first application, first start with thinking about the problem cases. Mm -hmm. What happens when two people edit the same item? Um, And this is why I'm, yeah, I I feel like... um, Showing people uh, view-only version of something as an offline uh, capability is very useful because if I sit on a train and I just want to quickly look into my to-do list, I want to see the to-do list and I don't just don't want to like see uh, your offline message. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I want to, if I then want to add something to the to-do list, then maybe I need to wait until I'm off uh, online. Or it can be queued on your client for example and sent to the server later but that's a different kind of offline capability than really saying I'm offline first and the application works on the client uh, no matter if the server uh, exists or not
0: okay. um, accessibility is a huge topic mm-hmm. nowadays oh um, well, I don't know if nowadays it should have always been a huge topic but when we're talking about web like developing front ends, we're talking about re- creating a web page and how can we really make sure that we're inclusive for all of the mm. users who come to our web page
1: yeah so um, the the thing about that is that web the web uh, uh, the HTML on its own is very accessible okay. if you write no CSS no JavaScript just HTML then it's probably something that everyone can use because um, a screen reader will be fine with it and uh, a user that needs a much bigger font size because they don't see as well anymore will be able to use it. Uh, and people um, with uh, with color blindness will be able to use them. But as soon as we start with a CSS and JavaScript, then we start with problems um, mm-hmm. where we don't where we might make something less usable for something someone who has different needs than. Uh, than i have for example Mm -hmm. Um, and this is why i always try to first create something with just html and really do it this progressive enhancement style so progressive enhancement basically means we have a baseline version that will work everywhere so Mm -hmm. it will work in the oldest internet explorer it will work (laughs) in (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> uh, everything um maybe it will not not everything will work maybe the date picker will just be a text input field but it will work basically mm-hmm. and then progressive enhancement adds layers on top of that and improvements that make it nicer to use that make it uh, look beautiful and stuff like that um and if you follow this approach then you start with a very minimal like uh, HTML only version that will probably be accessible on its own and if you then add a layer then you need to think about what did I change about my markup for example mm-hmm. um, uh, that makes it impossible uh, to use without CSS mm-hmm. uh, or make it imp- uh, or um, I, uh, you add uh, a hint that is only in CSS uh, but there's nothing in the markup that says there's an error on that field. So first, always think about the HTML first because that's the most accessible thing that is in in your tool belt. Um, And um, that's the the one thing I want to say about accessibility. The other thing is to just do testing because Mm -hmm. um, if you have um, a modern device, it will probably have built-in capabilities for blind users, for example. If you have Mm -hmm. an iPhone, you can... uh, put it into a blind user mode and uh, try out how your application works because that's the only way to make sure that it works try to use your application without a mouse does it work doesn't doesn't work because there are people that cannot use a mouse because um yeah their hands are too shaky for Mm -hmm. for using a mouse they prefer to use a keyboard try out to uh, use your tab key to move mm-hmm. to, through your application doesn't make any sense or are, ju- are you jumping around in the page mm-hmm. um, and yeah accessibility would be a topic for another yes it uh, is a very large topic yeah but um, uh, I can put in, uh, to um, suggestions on books to read mm-hmm. about that topic uh, into the show notes and I think that um, it's an important topic also from a business perspective a lot of people uh, think that um Accessibility is something you do because you're a good person, basically. But there's also an argument if you're just a business person that doesn't care about uh, being a nice person, <laughs> not all business people.
0: Um, I'm a business person who likes, who's also a good person. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, then uh, s- still there's a case uh, for putting a lot of effort into accessibility because they are customers, right? Mm-hmm. And if they cannot use your page, you will lose customers. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. I think it it makes sense to put effort into doing that. And uh, just to make it uh, to make that clear, you can if you write an application in a uh, clients uh, rendered way. Mm-hmm. There's uh you can still make it extremely accessible. There's uh, the, you can't just do that. But probably it will be a little bit harder from mm-hmm. my experience. Um but it is possible and you should do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, um, what's the next big thing in front end development?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. What we uh, looking out for. Uh, I think that one thing that's happening right now um, is uh, uh, CSS Grid, um, which changes a lot of things about the way that we can do layouts on the web. Uh, mm-hmm. It makes layouts on the web much more exciting. You can do things that didn't work before. Um, and also, it enables us to build websites that are really, really responsive. Like from the smallest viewport to the biggest viewport, mm. it, there's a layout that works on all those devices without writing a lot of special case code for a smaller screen, bigger screen, and stuff like that. Um, I think it's almost impossible to describe CSS grid in an audio format, um, yep. but I would uh, <laughs> suggest uh, to uh, um, watch talks about that on YouTube, for example, um, I will also put something in the show notes for that because there's a great YouTube series uh, by Jen Simmons um, where she shows what you can now do with CSS that you couldn't do before. And I think um, this is a bigger revolution that, than most people think because um, we really can do things that didn't work before.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think we covered quite a few aspects of mm-hmm. uh, front-end development. Um, my question now is, uh, how do I go about developing a front-end application? Mm-hmm. What tools are available? What what kind of workflow? What's your usual workflow?
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I think that um, it always almost is like scary to people, right? Because they 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 Google for how do I uh, write uh, how do I put all my CSS files into one file and then mm-hmm. they see a thousand different ways on how to do that and a thousand different tools that will do that. Um, and uh, yeah, that makes front end scary in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I usually do is um, I write my CSS uh, using SAS or SCSS, which is a language that translates to the CSS um, and or some people call it a preprocessor. Uh, And it adds some nice things like import statements Mm -hmm. uh, or um, uh, variables and uh, nesting and stuff like that. Um, And if you want to write a bigger CSS project, I would definitely suggest that you look into SCSS um, because uh, it makes a lot of things easier. There are other uh, alternatives to that like stylus and other languages. Mm, I just Really like SCSS, and um, but I I think stylus is fine as well if if you prefer mm-hmm. that. Um, the one one advantage that SCSS has over the other solutions is that Bootstrap is written in SCSS. Mm-hmm. So if you, for example, uh, want to base your application on Bootstrap and then extend onto that, then um, if you use SCSS, you can, for example, only import certain parts of Bootstrap. Uh, and basically throw away all the things that you don't need. Uh, and that's something that uh, I did in the last project, for example. Uh, we, we started with a lot of bootstrap components and uh, did like a first draft of the web application. How should it look? Um, and then there were a lot of things where the uh, where the client said I want to have something different than the bootstrap component. Mm-hmm. Then we threw out the bootstrap component, wrote our own component, uh, but yeah, the the baseline of uh, Bootstrap was still there. And I think that Bootstrap is a good base on which to start your CSS. It gives you certain structure. It gives you like, you can have your color names and stuff like that. And that's why I mostly do uh, Bootstrap-based design. But I just don't just put in the whole CSS of Bootstrap, but I import it, from my CSS, uh, from my SCSS and then I can pick and choose mm-hmm. from uh, Bootstrap. Um, and on the JavaScript side uh, you also have the problem that you maybe don't want to write a lot of different uh, files and then put them together into a few files or one file of JavaScript. So you need something like a bundler and a very um, common one for that is Webpack Um, um, but there are other ones as well, like Rollup, for example. Um, And they have the goal to um, put your, yeah, to to put all your CSS files into one CSS file and all your JavaScript files into one JavaScript file. Um, But all those tools are, uh, you have to learn about them, you have to uh, study them. um, And I want to make that easier for people. That's why I started a project that we can talk about in a minute. Um, But before that, um, one important part of my approach to front-end is a component-based approach. Mm -hmm. So a component-based approach means that I try to cut the entire um, page into small pieces. Mm -hmm. Like in the same way we do it on the back-end, basically, we just don't write everything in one file, in one class, in one function or something. Um, But we put it into smaller pieces. And then we reuse that piece to build a bigger piece and mm-hmm. a bigger piece and a bigger piece. And that's the idea of co- of uh, component-based uh, frontends. And a component for me consists of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. Those three things belong together. Mm-hmm. And I usually have a CSS file that corresponds to a HTML template or, or partial or whatever it's called in that language and uh, um, a JavaScript file that extends that. Um, and each of those can be then developed in isolation. So I can, for example, build the perfect button on its own, mm-hmm. and then I can use it in all kinds of places, right? And this is where a style guide can help as well. So in a style guide, you always write the the, the components, mm-hmm. and then later on in your application, you can put them together and use them together.
0: Mm-hmm. So a style guide is also a tool.
1: A style guide is a tool, right? Mm-hmm. There are different... Uh, tools that can help you build your style guide, um, and um, yeah, uh, some people yeah start with the components in the style guide and then put them into the application. Some people start with the application and, and then extract them to the style guide. I think that um, the to start with the style guide has the, it its advantages because you start at the small component level mm-hmm. and you can look at it in isolation, make it bigger, make it smaller. Um, and yeah, get a feeling for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one approach to to, to put those uh, into categories is atomic design. Yeah. So atomic okay. design says like, there is very small parts, uh, very small components, and then you can use bigger components that use those small components. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's an interesting book about that um, called Atomic Design, uh, which explains how, how to do that. And um, I would recommend uh, looking into that especially if you are a designer or UX person, because uh, I think it has influence on your work as well. So if you uh, create a design uh, with atomic design in the back of your head, then it will probably be easier to implement for the people that later write the HTML and CSS.
0: Okay. Um, so what's your favorite style guide? Or a favorite good, style guide? Or you can, maybe you have more than one. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: you mean... Uh, do you mean a style a, guide or a, do you mean a software to create style the guides? Sty-
0: the software to create style Okay. Uh, or if you have a favorite style guide, you can do that <laughs> too. I meant the tool, but...
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> um, okay. Um, a tool I really like for that is called Fractal. Mm-hmm. Um, it has some weird things about it, but um, from all the tools I've tried so far, I like it the most. Okay. Um, I'm not a... Re- Huge fractal fan, but I would mm-hmm. say it's a good tool and it works pretty well. Okay.
0: And then, um, so I'm really excited to ask you about this because uh, you developed a tool for developing asset pipelines mm-hmm. and I really love it. Mm-hmm. So, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that's just me um, interjecting. So, could you tell us a little bit about your project?
1: Yeah, so one thing that um, I said before is that the the amount of tools and the things you need to read and, and stuff like that is so much that people tend to either not do it at all or need to ask someone to set it up for them or stuff like that because they want to have Write modern JavaScript, but compile it to JavaScript that is, uh, also works on f- for your, your old devices, for example. Um, and if you wanted to have all those things, then um, you have to, to put a lot of pieces together. And then you Google on Stack Overflow, then you copy some code. You don't really understand what's going on there, but you copy it to your code anyways. And then, yeah, you are... In a mess, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, a colleague of mine, uh, Frederick Dorr, and I, um, we started a project uh, called Faucet Pipeline. And Faucet Pipeline uh, basically um, is a tool that uses, um, that is based on the tools that we think are currently the best tools Mm -hmm. for that um, and um, provides a very simple configuration format. Uh, to configure a few things about it, but not everything. That's mm-hmm. part of the design that it's not allowing you to do everything. Um, and then um, does all the things that it needs to do with the tools beneath it and puts out CSS, mm-hmm. JavaScript and images. So um, so if you use Faucet Pipeline, you can choose to, for example, um, have a JavaScript pipeline. Mm-hmm. If you don't need it, you can just, not install it, uh, you can have a uh, SCSS pipeline, uh, a f- um, pipeline for images and a pipeline for static files. Uh, and um, I- and there's also a variant of the JavaScript pipeline for TypeScript, if you prefer TypeScript, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and all those pipelines just take basically a source, which is a, yeah, a path to a file mm-hmm. and a target where it should put the resulting files. And um, yeah, people, uh, like a lot of people at at InnoQ, the company I work for, they they, um, use that in their project and they are very happy with that. Uh, An uh, an old customer also uses it in production uh, and they also really like it. um, So I'm confident that it helps a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The goal is not to write a pipeline that works for everything, but for like 95% of projects. So Mm -hmm. it will not work if you have a really complex javascript front end where you want to split it into 15 different files and lazy load something and stuff like that but for most projects it will solve your problem without you needing to write a lot of configuration files and stuff like that um and um, yeah we are moving towards 1.0 maybe when this podcast is released 1.0 will be released Uh, we are currently. working on the release candidate uh, and we're testing it very thoroughly and um, also writing a lot of documentation. So everyone knows everything, uh, Mm -hmm. understands everything that's going on. Um, And one design goal is if we at some point want to change something under the hood. So for example, we use Rollup for um, uh, putting all the JavaScript files into one JavaScript file. If a better tool comes up that works faster or makes smaller files, then we can change the way that it works under the hood, and you don't need to change anything about your code or mm-hmm. your configuration file. That's one design goal of the uh, of the uh, application. Okay,
0: sounds like all asset pipelines should have been implemented like that from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think that's all of the questions I had for you. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you would like to say about web development?
1: Um, I think that um, if you are a backend developer that never did front end, try it out and uh, like try to uh, read about CSS architecture, for example, and not just complain about it or or uh, talk about it like it's too easy to uh, to be. Mm-hmm relevant to a real developer and and quotes I really hate the term real developer because I think (laughs) all developers are real developers Um, and um, just try it out and uh, don't just think that CSS can never be maintainable I think Mm -hmm. that's wrong you can do that in a good way Um, but you need to pay the same attention to that as you pay to your backend code because Mm -hmm. if you would just write your java code like you write some like some people write their css code it would also not be maintainable right Mm -hmm. um so uh that would be my oh
0: i'm just i'm a bad pictures in my head right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah
1: that would be my um conclusion basically okay
0: um you mentioned a couple of books Mm -hmm. uh during the podcast and and uh, resources we'll definitely link those in the show notes Mm -hmm. um are there any other books or resources yeah there's a really good um
1: online book called Resilient Web Design. Um, It is a little bit like a history of the web but also a lot of philosophy of the web. Like Mm -hmm. how do we write applications that work very well in all browsers. Mm -hmm. Um, I would recommend that. It's free and online uh, so uh, we will link that. And there are a lot of good books uh, from uh, a book apart. Um, They write books about CSS, design, user experience and stuff like that. And I read multiple books um, from a book apart and all of them were very good. So I can recommend that as well.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. To all our listeners. Until next time.
1: Bye.